Amen. Have a seat. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is week, I think, 4 or 5 in our summer sermon series called Actually the Bible Doesn't Say That. We've been examining different thoughts, different sayings, different ideas in culture that are predominant in culture and some can sometimes even get into our minds and into our lives if we're not careful as Christians that people assume that the Bible says, but that the Bible actually never says. And this week we're going to look at one that you've probably heard people say at some point in your life, maybe multiple times in your life, and it's actually something that maybe you have even said, uh, a well-meaning piece of advice that you've given someone. I know I've done this at a point in my Christian walk early on, thinking that I was giving some good, biblical, helpful advice. Uh, here's, Here's what that advice sounds like. God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've used it like this little kid in this comic strip I found this week. It's kind of blurry, but I thought it was pretty funny. He's going to his mom. Before I tell you what happened, mom, remember the Lord will never give you more than you can handle. All right? It's kind of cheesy, but kind of funny. All right? So uh, maybe you have heard someone say that. Maybe you have said that before. But the question is, is that true? Is it true that God will not allow circumstances in our life to come into our life uh, that we can't handle? Is that good biblical advice to give somebody and for us to live by? God will never give you more than you can handle. Let's go to God's Word and let's seek clarity on that and get an answer to that this morning. So stand with your Bibles open, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to read three verses here, starting in verse 8. And then we're going to go back and look at another text in a moment. But we're going to come back here and camp out here for the most, most of our time this morning. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that, we will, that He will deliver us again. Have a seat as I pray. Father, we are grateful, and we come to You this morning with grateful hearts, that we can enter into Your presence, that we can pray to You, that we can seek Your face, that we can have access into Your presence. By the blood of Jesus, we're grateful for that. So we come to you with grateful hearts this morning, with worshipful hearts. Lord, we come to you with expecting hearts. We come to you boldly asking that you would work in our lives through your word this morning, Lord, that you would bring us more in line, more and more with your will for your glory. And if anyone here this morning is specifically struggling with something in their life, a trial, affliction, a hardship, they're in the middle of a storm, Lord, I pray that you would... Help them leave here with a heart full of hope this morning. Lord, that we would set our hope on you. Lord, that you would help us all to think more biblically about seasons of suffering in our life. Lord, that you would help us to understand that what we need the most is a spirit that is humble and desperate for you. And Lord, sometimes you take us through storms to get us to that place. So I pray that you would work in all of our hearts, that you'd make us all more reliant on you and less reliant on ourselves. We need your spirit to help us to do that. So we pray boldly that you would for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one, let's begin this morning by looking at what we're going to call unhelpful advice for the afflicted. Unhelpful advice for the afflicted, which is God will never give you more than you can handle. That's actually a misquote of a verse in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. 
found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to take a look at this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, this is what the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And here it is. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, that phrase right there, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's where the statement, God will never give you more than you can handle, originates from. And if you give this passage, the one that we just read, that text, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, like a quick reading, uh, you can definitely see... Uh, how easy it can be for somebody to get the impression that God is never going to give you a Christian more than you can handle. But if you slow down a little bit, we actually realize what Paul's actually talking about right here. Paul is exclusively, specifically talking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, about the temptation to sin. He isn't talking just generally about life's hardships and storms and trials. All right, this is a letter in which, 1 Corinthians, in which Paul is warning the Corinthian church about falling into sexual immorality, about falling back into idolatry. It was very common in their pagan culture. So it's clear that Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, about temptation to sin. That's really important for us to understand. Because when people go through times of adversity, when people go through times of trials, when people go through storms, it's very common for people to grab at this verse and to say, hey, tell people like some advice or maybe even grab this for ourselves and say, hey, remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is not about overcoming suffering. It's about overcoming sin. It's about overcoming temptation. And it's actually a very encouraging verse. Paul is making the point that when you are tempted to sin, anybody ever tempted to sin? All of us are tempted to sin. After we come to Christ, we continue to be tempted to sin. He says, remember this, that you don't have to give in to that temptation. In other words, we have the capacity with the new heart that God's placed inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit in us to say no to sin. Again, we will still sin. Between here and heaven... We will sin because we're battling against the sinful desires of our flesh, because we're battling against an enemy that is attacking us on attack every day in our lives. But the whole, with the Holy Spirit inside of us between here and heaven, it's encouraging to know that in Christ, there's no temptation that ever crosses our path as a born-again, spirit-filled believer that you cannot say no to. That's Paul's point. That's what that verse is communicating. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's really saying, God will never let you be tempted beyond your ability as a new, empowered by the Spirit, creation in Christ Jesus. Right? And the truth that you don't have to give in to temptation is very different from saying, God will never give you more than you can handle when it comes to trials and hardships and storms and afflictions in your life and that you face in this life. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is saying in this verse. Right? And it's not just... That Paul's not saying that here. Look at what he does say in the passage that we're going to camp out in this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He actually tells us, hey, not only does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 not say that God will never give you more than you can handle with your trials. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he actually says God will give you more than you can handle. Right. You say, well, where is that? Look at 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verse 8 again. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brother, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised life itself. Now, how is Paul describing his situation? How is Paul describing his life? He feels crushed. He feels overwhelmed. It's something that feels beyond his ability to endure it. He feels like his situation is so desperate that he feels like he and his companions are going to die. He's in a really tough spot. All right, so he's in that really tough spot. Now, how do you think Paul would respond if in the middle of him dealing with all the difficulty that he's articulating, that he's describing, that he's dealing with in his life, if somebody came up next to him and said, Hey, Paul, hey, hang in there, buddy. Chin up. God will never give you more than you can handle. He'd say, what kind of nonsense, Joel Osteen stuff have you been reading? Who told you that? Don't say that anymore. That's a misquote. That's a misunderstanding of what I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He'd say, listen, throughout my journey with Jesus, God has given me more than I can bear, more times than I can count. And this is certainly one of those times. Paul's writing 2 Corinthians from Macedonia with a broken heart. He just left Ephesus where he poured out his life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the glory of Jesus for three years. He loved that city, longed to see that city come to Jesus. Saw a lot of people come to Christ and poured his heart out and discipled a lot of people. But he's just left there. The business leaders have run him out of town and they tried to kill him. And here he is in Macedonia with another major city that's on his heart that he poured his life out in, which is Corinth. Where he's had a lot of problems along the way with the people in Corinth who came to Christ running back into sin. He's written them several letters. They've run back into sexual sin and idolatry. And now he's gotten word in Macedonia that there's a group of men called super apostles who've come into town, eloquent speakers, high-flying philosophers. They're muddying the gospel message. They're criticizing Paul's apostolic authority. They're questioning it. They're coming alongside of these Christians that Paul poured his life into. And they're saying, hey, you know, Paul's a strong writer, but the dude can't preach. Strong writer, weak preacher. Really good at writing, really bad at preaching. And that was bothering, that bothered Paul. Right? By the way, that's just a, a lesson in ministry to you. If you're a Bible Connect group teacher, if you feel called to ministry, being a good preacher does not make you effective in ministry by itself. It says Paul wasn't that great of a preacher, but he was very effective in the kingdom of God. Discipling people. I had to learn that along the way. That what I'm doing right now is important, but being a good preacher does not make me a good pastor. That was the case for Paul. Wasn't a great preacher, was a great pastor. Came alongside of people, built relationships with people, focused on the discipleship of people, came alongside of people for the long run, didn't peddle easy believism. Preached the gospel, led people to Christ, and then came alongside of them for the long run, discipling them. That's what makes you effective in ministry for the glory of God, right? That's a little bit of rabbit trail, but it's good exercise every once in a while to chase a rabbit. And hopefully that encourages somebody. But Paul is discouraged to hear that they're in their ears about that. Paul is also gotten word that the super apostles are criticizing uh, the way that Paul is suffering. They're saying, you really believe that he's an apostle? Like, look at the way he suffers. If he was really an apostle, do you think God would allow one of his own apostles to suffer like that? So they're peddling some kind of prosperity gospel. 
And so with his heart in pieces and all kinds of hardship going on in his life, he writes this letter, which was actually the fourth letter written to Corinth. Only two of the letters are canonized. And this is the fourth letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians in Corinth. And in this letter, at the beginning of it, he spends a lot of time defending his suffering. He spends a lot of time building his case that no, my suffering doesn't disqualify me as an apostle. It doesn't mean that the favor of God's not on my life. No, it actually means the favor of God is on my life. And so, in this passage, he also provides some of the richest theology on how to understand and deal with suffering in all of the Bible. Maybe you're suffering this morning as a believer. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your rope this morning. Maybe you feel utterly burdened by an affliction. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the hardships of life this morning. Here's my prayer for you as we get into this passage again, as we kind of dive into some of the richest theology of suffering in all of the Bible, is that this morning you'll stop letting your circumstances affect the way you view God. And that you'll let a renewed view of God this morning through His Word affect and impact the way you view your circumstances. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you say, hey man, life is actually pretty good for me right now. Like, it's actually pretty good. Like, it's actually smooth sailing for me right now. So I'm not sure that this passage is going to have anything to do with me. I'm going to check out. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh yeah, it does. It does. Because suffering is a part of life. Suffering is something that you are going to deal with in this world because this world is a broken world, but it's also something that you're going to deal with in some new ways when you come to Christ. You come to Christ and you get a whole new set of troubles just by being a Christian. Amen. You say, well, you know, is that, is that true? Well, look at the one that you're following. Your master, your Lord that you're following, he ends up stripped naked, flesh flayed open on a cross, nailed to a Roman cross. That's who we follow. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Do you know what that means this morning? This applies to everybody because what that means is you're either just coming out of a season of suffering, you're either in a season of suffering right now, or buckle up, you're about to go into one. Like, well, that's not very encouraging, but it's biblical, it's real. Hey, and we need to make sure as we think about seasons of suffering that are parts of our life that we're either coming out of or in or we're going into, we need to make sure that we are equipped and ready as we go into seasons of suffering, as we're walking through seasons of suffering, that we're able to endure faithfully. And spoiler alert, God, Paul's going to help us do that, but spoiler alert, he's not going to come alongside of us with a snappy one-liner that look, looks good on a bumper sticker or on a coffee mug. Like, hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. As if, you know what that's, that's like as if you're saying like, hey, I know God, God knows how tough you are and he has you in that storm because he knows that you got this. You just need to dig deep. You just need to grit your teeth. You just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and show some willpower. So that's bad advice. But what we also find in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is we find infinitely better advice for the overwhelmingly afflicted. We find better biblical advice for the overwhelmingly afflicted. And there's really three parts to this. Number one, here's the better advice. In your time of affliction, rely on God. I'd argue that the main purpose of the trial that you're in the middle of this morning is to teach you to do just that. Like, we don't got all the details of Paul's suffering. All we know is that it was really bad. What he's walking through was really, really bad. And he wants to make a few things clear about his situation. One, he wants to make sure that we understand that in his hardship, his internal resources were maxed out. 
He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. For Paul, he's got nothing left in the tank. Nothing within him self to dig deeper into. His strength was depleted. Two, he wants us to know this, how bad it was. He thought they were going to die. He thought his life was about to end. And three, he says, we're on the verge of despair. He said, we're spiraling into utter despair. No strength, no resources. Death is looming. They're falling into despair. They feel like giving up. Hey, can anybody resonate with Paul this morning? Anybody ever been there? He's in a terrible place. But this passage helps us understand something really important when it comes to our theology of suffering, our understanding of suffering. This passage helps us understand that it's in those moments when we're at the end of our rope. That's the moment, that's the place where God wants to meet us. It's right here at the end of his rope that God wants to meet Paul. This helps us understand that a major purpose in all of our trials and affliction that comes into our lives, verse 9... He says what? It's to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God's purpose for your affliction is not to harm you, it's to teach you. It's not to just bring purposeless pain into your life. It's to form something in you, spiritually significant inside of you, that only that trial, that only that hardship, that only that season of affliction can shape within you. I know it's not fun. It's not, if we put out a ministry table out in the concourse today for an affliction ministry and said, hey, go by and sign up for an affliction today, nobody would go by there in their right mind and sign up. Everyone would avoid it like the plague because we don't like affliction. We don't like trial. We don't like pain. We don't like hardships. That's why we like going on vacation to the mountains. Or we like going on vacation to the beach. Or we like going on vacation to the lake house. Right? Life is good at the lake house. You don't got to worry about what you're... Like you can just eat whatever you want to eat for the week. No hectic schedule. As long as you and your family kind of get along, it's a pretty stress-free week. A bunch of laying out, a bunch of sleeping in, stress-free. You know, as dads, you can get behind the, the wheel of a boat, fling some kids off of some tubes. That relieves some stress for you, right? Amen. Life feels pretty stress-free at the lake, right? God doesn't mature disciples at a lake house. God doesn't mature disciples on beach days or at the mountain house. It's not where He does His greatest work. It's in the storms of life. It's in the seasons of hardship. It's in the seasons of affliction where He produces some of His greatest work inside of us. And you know what? One of the most important things that that trial in your life is intended to shape in you that could not be shaped in you if you are not being brought through that storm right now, it's a deep, profound, real desperation for God. Affliction has an amazing ability to show us our insufficiency. Our limits. That there's an end to our rope. It's meant to show us our insufficiency in the complete sufficiency of God. It grows my faith in, in that I can, that He's God and I'm not. That He's the one that I can truly rely on. That He's the one that I can truly trust in. Alright, there's a, a little phrase that our generation, I believe the millennial generation, has contributed to society that you've probably used before, probably heard used in your home by somebody. I can't even. You ever heard somebody say that? I can't even. 
Right? We run into a situation, maybe you have a, a spouse or uh, someone in your family who says that a lot. You run into a situation where you get to the end of your rope and you throw up your hands and you say, I just, I can't even. I can't even. It's not even a full grammatical unit, right? But we use it. I can't even. Not a full sentence, but it works. And it's meant to capture our ability, or it's, supposed to, it's, it's meant to capture our inability to reckon with whatever's going on in that situation. And Paul is trying to highlight that when we find ourselves in afflictions and sufferings and trials, the appropriate response is, I can't even. I can't. I can't handle this. I can't reckon with this. But God can. That's what the trial, that's the place that the trial is meant to take you. That's the main place that it's meant to take you. Our trials are meant to expose our limitations, our weaknesses, so that we will turn to God. Trials do that. Think about the ultimate trial in your life that you will face will be one day, if you live long enough, to be on a bed one day that they call a deathbed. And there you will be on your back. You will be totally exposed to your limits. Only left with the option to look up. Now God desires that we get to that place without having to get to those kind of moments. But he knows what we need is trials between here and that major moment to keep us in tune with that reality that we are in desperate need of him every moment, not just in that deathbed moment. He uses trials to get us to that place to where we rely on him. To where, hey, I can't, I can't handle this, but God can. Our trials are meant to expose our limitations and our weaknesses so that we'll turn to Him, rely on Him, and the God in whom there's no limits. The God in whom there's no weakness. The God in whom, Paul says, raises the dead. And that's the key that Paul wants us to hone in on. He says, Your trial is meant to cause you to turn and rely on the God who raises the dead. And this is how it applies to your your trials and your affliction right now. I want you, and, and I know this is a little dark, but I think it's helpful. I want you to imagine the worst of your trials. I want you to go down the darkest path. What is the worst possible outcome with whatever trial that's looming over your life right now. Now tell me, if God truly raises people from the dead, is your problem, the, the worst that it could get, is it too big for Him? Is your affliction too severe? Is your suffering unable for Him to bear? God uses our afflictions to teach us not to grit our teeth and to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, He's using that trial in your life to teach you to let go of the bootstraps. And to rely on His all-sufficient power to rescue you and to redeem you and to restore you and to sustain you and to help you endure faithfully through that trial. When affliction comes and when you are at your limits, at your wit's end, don't turn to the things of this world for rescue. They will fail you. Don't turn to the things of this world to medicate you. They will fail you. Don't even think that self-reliance is the answer. Don't think this is hard. Oh, but God would never give me more than I can handle. Yes, He would. And yes, He does. So that we will turn in desperation to Him and rely on Him. The God who raises the dead and whom you will never find is at His wit's end. So, when trials come, we remember to rely on God. And then point two is kind of a byproduct of turning to Him and relying on Him. And it's this, we receive comfort from God. We receive comfort. 
when we turn and rely on God, who has limitless power, Paul says, you're turning, this is the character of the God you're turning to. Look at verse 3 at the beginning of this chapter. He says, you're turning to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Now that word comfort there, it means to encourage, to console, to, to exhort. And we've got to be careful because when we see that translated into the English, that word comfort, we immediately go to comfortable. Because we like comfort. And praise God for comfort. Praise God we live in the most technologically advanced society ever. We have more conveniences than really most of the world has, by the way, right now. But definitely the rest of human history. Sometimes we take that for granted. But we've got to be careful because that understanding of comfort and that love for comfort, it can muddy and get in the way of understanding the type of comfort that God's talking about right here. Right? We, we, we like comfort. We know what it means to be comfortable. Like we, we understand some things that would feel comfortable to us on a hot July day in Northeast Florida, right? How about some air conditioning? Praise God for a big room like this that's filled with air conditioning to be miserable if it wouldn't work properly right now. Right? Ice cream on a day like today would be nice and comfortable. We know what it means to be comfortable in different ways. We like comfort. We like low doses of pain and very little emotional stress. We like Sunday afternoon naps. Can I get an amen? In a recliner, maybe dozing off to some golf or a baseball game. That's what we think of when we think about the word comfort. But Paul isn't talking about turning to God who is able to make us comfortable in our affliction. That's not what he's trying to help us to understand. Like God comforts me, like He tucks me in, puts a pillow under my bed, right? He reads me a little bedtime story. He, he tucks me and maybe brings me some chicken noodle soup if I'm feeling sick. Right there, there, my child. This isn't the kind of comfort that Paul's talking about right here. This isn't God going there, there. David Garland, I was reading the New American Commentary this week, and he has a really good quote about this that I'll just read. Uh, I'll just read his quote. It says, It is not some tranquil, I'm talking about comfort, it is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but it's a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unbending assurance. That's a good quote. That gives us some clarity on the kind of comfort that God brings. Listen, there is no, there's no affliction that you're going through this morning that God can't meet you in, that He doesn't desire to meet you in as you turn and rely on Him. There's no affliction that you're in that He's incapable of meeting you in. There's no affliction that you're in that He won't comfort you in. But the kind of comfort that He provides to your soul, what that, that, what that doesn't mean is that He's going to remove the pain. That He's going to remove the trouble. Him meeting you in that place and being the God of comfort in your life doesn't mean that He's going to take all that away. What it does mean and what He does promise us is that He'll bring you the strength. He'll bring you the fortification. He'll bring you the encouragement. He'll bring you the comfort, the perseverance that you need in that moment to endure faithfully through that season as you turn to Him and as you draw near to Him. And in this passage... Paul gives us, it's, it's a really great passage. And this is what I meant. This is why I said it's one of the most richest, got some of the most richest uh, theology when it comes to suffering in all the Bible. Because Paul right here gives us a way that when we come to our wit's end, 
and we turn to God that we can experience in God's strengthening comfort in our life. Do you desire to experience God's strengthening comfort in your life? Some of you are in a trial this morning. Some of you are in a season of affliction this morning. And if you long to experience the kind of comfort that strengthens you the way that David Garland explained it, strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits, Paul actually gives us a way when we come to our wit's end that we can experience God's strengthening comfort in our life that will fortify us. He says, here's how you can experience it. Here's how that can flood your life by reflecting on God's past and future deliverance. That discipline will bring a peace and will bring a resolve and will bring, will bring a deeper level of, of trust in the Lord into your life. It'll give you a strengthening comfort in the middle of your storm. Look at verse 10. He says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Listen, one of the greatest things that we can do when we're in the middle of affliction is to start to list the ways that God has been faithful to rescue His people. My heart needs to remember that. My heart needs my Bible open and my heart needs to be regularly reminded of who this God is who I'm turning to. That my trials are reminding me, hey, I'm, I'm at my wit's end and I'm turning to this God and I'm relying on Him. Who is this God? The Bible celebrates His faithfulness. Celebrates His character celebrates His perfect track record of rescuing and delivering His people, His kids. And if you're His kid, your heart needs to be reminded as you look back into God's Word of His faithfulness to do just that. Who's this God you're turning to and relying on? He's the very God who led the Israelites to the Red Sea. Now think about that moment. God led them to a, mom, to a place where they were confronted not with their own Strength and how powerful they were, but how limited they were. There was no one in that crowd of Israelites as they're on the Red Sea going, Hey, listen, God led us to this place because He knows we can handle this. He'd never give us anything we, could, we couldn't handle. So you guys swim that way. We'll fight this Egyptian army behind us. And we just need to show a little willpower. No, He brought them to that place to reveal their desperate need for Him. And what did He do? He met them in that place and He split the sea and He made a way. He delivered them. That's the God that you're turning to. That you're relying on. It's the God who walked with those Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years and fed them. He sent fire out of heaven to guide them through the wilderness. I wish I had time this morning to walk through the Old Testament to highlight all the different ways that God has been faithful to His people. You read it. You walk through the Old Testament. Your heart needs to hear it over and over and over again. He's the same God that thousands of years later came into this world in the form of a baby, died a death for your sins and mine, and then resurrected from the grave to defeat death. Reflect on His path. Faithfulness. Try and count all the ways God has been faithful to His character and His promise to rescue in Scripture. In addition to that, think about your own life. Think about the ways that God has been faithful to you. Don't forget the time that He delivered you when you were at the end of your rope, when you didn't think there was going to be a way for you to be delivered, and He came through and delivered something in your life, something in your family's life. Don't forget about that hard, that sad season that you walked through. But as you walk through it, as you look back, God was actually working. He was building your faith through that. And He made a way when there 
Seemed to be no way. Never forget God's faithfulness. And then Paul then says, he says, he's delivered us from deadly peril before and he will deliver us again. It's really important. In building your theology of suffering, this part's very, very important. We don't just look back and celebrate God's faithfulness in the past so that we can experience His strengthening comfort in the present. We also have to look forward. We don't just remember His past faithfulness. Remember His past faithfulness. We look ahead to a future deliverance. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we know that we will be resurrected. We're promised in Christ a future deliverance. That's ours. He will deliver us. That's really, really encouraging. That's soul-strengthening truth right there. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I can't know. It's impossible for me to know all the details of what you're going through this morning. But what I do know is if you are in Christ, this is true. Take it to the bank for your life. He will deliver you. Now, what that doesn't mean is an easy life between here and heaven. What that does mean is no matter how painful it gets, that even if the trial brings you to the face of death itself, the story is not over for you. Because you're in Christ who defeated death. And that means you'll be delivered from death. Think about how amazing that is. Death does not defeat you. Like, if you really believe that, man, that'll turn somebody into a dangerous disciple right there. If you're overwhelmed with affliction this morning, recognize that you can't. Recognize that you need to rely on God. Specifically by reflecting on God's perfect deliverance, the Holy Spirit will strengthen your faith. And even if your problems don't go away, you will be filled with an inexplicable joy and peace and strengthening comfort because in the big scheme of things, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Either I'm going to be delivered out of this or I'm going to die. Wait, that doesn't sound very encouraging. If you really think about it with the heart of faith, it actually is. Either God will deliver me out of this affliction or the worst thing that can happen in my life, I'm going to die, which means I'll be delivered. I'll either be delivered or I'll be delivered. That's, That's what makes Christians and disciples so dangerous. What I mean by that is dangerously impactful for the glory of God. That's why those early brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century church were able to walk to their death sentence because they wouldn't shut up about the gospel singing hymns with smiles on their face. Because they actually believed that. Either I'll be delivered or I'll be delivered. Either I'll be delivered or I will die and it'll be a terrible moment which will immediately become the best moment of my life. As I step into the presence of my Savior. Well, very quickly, there's a third thing. Because these are two things that God does within us in our seasons of suffering. But there's a third thing that we learn from this passage that He wants to do through us. So we rely on God. We receive comfort. Number three, we reinforce others. He says the reason you're comforted is not just for the sake of your own comfort. Okay, so... This may sting a little bit. Your season of suffering isn't just about you. 
God comforts us in our affliction. And then he says in the middle of verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So our trial isn't about just us learning about the limitations. Our limitations, it is. It isn't just about God's power in, our, in trial in our lives. It's not just about God working in me in my trial. It's, it's not just about me receiving comfort for comfort's sake. He wants us now to comfort others, to strengthen others, to encourage others. The comfort we receive enables us to help others when they suffer. Listen, I don't know all the reasons why you're going through what you're going through this morning. I can't know. God knows. But He kind of lets us know things on, on a need-to-know basis. One day... Things will be much more clear for all of us. And I don't know why you're going through what you're going through this morning. I don't. But I do know some things about what you're going through this morning based upon God's Word. I do know this, that He's taking you through that trial and He's working in your life through that trial because He wants to do a, a work in you. He wants to make you more reliant on Him. And He's also taking you through that trial and growing you through that trial because He wants to use your life to make an impact on somebody else's. It's not just about you. Nothing in the Christian life that comes to us, no blessing, no gift, no comfort, nothing in the Christian life has ever been meant to stop with you. The gospel isn't supposed to stop with us. Forgiveness isn't supposed to stop with us. Encouragement isn't supposed to stop with us. Service isn't supposed to stop with us. Comfort isn't supposed to stop with us. We're not supposed to just be stagnant, stinky ponds that just sit still and mold grows and junk grows on us. Things are supposed to flow. And what we've received in the work that God's done in us, the comfort that He's provided to our souls, we now give. Paul understood that. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For afflicted, it is for your comfort and for your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So Paul understood how God works, and that's why he's able to look at these Christians in Corinth who are also suffering, some of it self-inflicted, but some of them are dealing with hardships and trials that just swooped in on their life. And he's able to look at them knowing how God works, and it's given him an unshakable hope for them. And now as he's writing these words to them, what is he doing? The words that we just read, he's encouraging them. He's comforting them. We don't know what they're going through exactly, but I do know this. If you're them, do you think it was encouraging them for them to hear the Apostle Paul say to them, my hope for you is unshaken? That had to be incredibly encouraging for their hearts to hear. As he's writing, Even as he's writing this, he's allowing himself, hey, I, he's been comforted by God and he's allowing himself to comfort others. And really, it's a way for him. He was going through a lot of the same trials that they were going through. It's a way for him to go, I know what you're going through. You're going to be all right. I'm going to be here with you through all of it. You know, all of, us are, all of us are experts in something this morning. Did you know that? If you're a believer, you're an expert in something this morning. And here's what your expertise is. Where you have struggled, and yet in the middle of that struggle, you've learned to rely on God, you found the comfort of God, you found that Jesus was enough, and you learned, maybe not perfectly, but you've learned or you're learning progressively to endure faithfully through that trial. Some of you are an ordained professor of a bad marriage. Some of you are an ordained professor of what it's like to have a rebellious child. 
Some of you are an ordained professor of what it's like to have a difficult parent, an abusive parent, an absent parent, a passive parent. Some of you are an ordained professor of what what it's like to walk through cancer and for a doctor to give you a death sentence. Some of you are an ordained professor of what it... What it feels like to walk through struggles like infertility. What it's like to walk through struggles like losing a child. Or losing a loved one. And because you've learned something in that struggle of what it means to trust God. And because you have experienced something of the comfort of God through that trial. God now wants you to come alongside others and comfort them. You've got to pass it on to others. That's what we do. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, if you're taking notes, just jot these down, and we don't have time to flesh all these out in detail. Let me give you four ways that you can come alongside of someone and be a comforter. By practicing the ministry of four Ps, the ministry of presence, the ministry of promise-telling, the ministry of pointing people to trust in God, and the ministry of prayer. The ministry of presence, the ministry of promise-telling, the ministry of pointing others to rely on God and the ministry of prayer. Hey, presence is powerful. You just sitting with somebody and being with them, putting all your sermons aside, putting all the little slick slogans aside and just sitting with them and listening to them, active listening is powerful. Ministry of presence. Ministry of promise telling. Just like your life has been strengthened as you swam in the promises of God, God can use you now to come alongside of somebody else and speak those promises over their heart and encourage them. Hey, I want to I do this with you right now because some of you are in a season of affliction right now. Some of you are in a season of suffering right now. I want you to listen to me. I want to I share some promises with you. Regardless of what you're going through, these are still true for you. God loves you. Amen. That's a promise. Nothing separates you from His love for you, even that trial. You say, well, I don't feel loved. Well, we don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. God loves you. He's with you. He's for you. I don't, hey, here's another promise. I don't understand what you're going through, but He will reconcile this on the last day. He's going to bring all of this together. Three, point them to rely on God and to trust God. You remember Jonathan? He was the friend of David. We're, going to, we're actually going to study the life of David this fall. That's going to be our fall study. We're going to spend 12 weeks studying the life of David. And Jonathan, who was David's friend, when David was under attack, remember when David's in that cave and Jonathan goes to meet him in the cave? Why does he go to the cave? What is he doing? To comfort him? To give him some strengthening comfort? And how did he do it? He practiced the ministry of presence. He practiced the ministry of promise telling. He practiced the ministry of pointing him to rely on God. He said, David, you're the king. You're the future dynasty, not my dad. God has made promises to you. He will keep those promises. He will establish your household. David, be bold in the Lord. Don't fear. Don't cower. Trust him. Rely on him. Don't try to figure this out in your own power and your own strength. We need people to come alongside of us sometimes and to remind us of that. And if you've walked through a trial, if you've walked through an affliction and God's met you there and you've experienced his presence and the ministry of his promises in your life, and the growth that happens is you trust in Him in that trial. Now it's your job to go along other, aside other people and to comfort them. And fourth is the ministry of prayer. Hey, Paul, the Apostle Paul needed the ministry of prayer in his life. Look at what he says in verse 11. You must also help us by prayer. 
One of the most comforting things you can do for somebody is to pray for them. And here's why. Because sometimes things can become so overwhelming that you can become so speechless and so numb that you don't even know what to say to anybody else. You don't even know what to say to to God. But you've experienced the comfort of a brother or sister in Christ coming alongside of you, putting their hand on you, and just praying for you when all you have, you you, you barely have the, the, the energy to muster up an amen at the end, but that's about all you got. And that comforts you. It's incredibly comforting. And some of you are there this morning. You're like, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to think. But what Paul is saying resonates with me. Really, all I can say right now is pray for him. In fact, in a room like this, we did this in the first service, and it was very, very encouraging because I want you to know that you're not alone. If you're in a place this morning of a trial, if you're in the place this morning of an affliction, if you're in the place this morning of a hardship and it's overwhelming, and you say, you know what, I don't even know what to say. All I know to say is, is, is pray for me. Would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? There's a lot of hands. You can put your hands down across the room. Some of you didn't raise your hand because you felt embarrassed about raising your hand. That's okay. But you just see even that dozens of hands go up. There's people walking this campus who need a friend in Christ to come alongside of them and for you to put your hand on their shoulder and say, hey, can I pray for you? God sustains us and heals us and grants us grace and comforts us in our afflictions, not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. This is why he comforts. He strengthens us so that we can strengthen others. Your greatest hardship will often lead to your greatest service to others. Your greatest pain, and if you look back, you'll actually see things in your life that have happened that support this statement. Your greatest pain will often lead to some of your greatest ministry moments. It will equip you to, it will enable you to sympathize with others. It will help you understand more of what people are going through. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to know all the reasons why you're going through what you're going through. But I do know that according to this Bible right here, God is using that trial in your life to bring you into a place of relying on Him. I do know this, that He will meet you in that affliction and He will care for you and bring you comfort in that affliction. I do know that that affliction has been designed by God for you. It's not a mistake that you're there. It's it's His intention to grow you through it. And it's also His intention to use you to encourage someone else because you've gone through it. And the reason we can remain faithful and the reason we can persevere and the reason why we can have strength, the strength of God and access to God and stay plugged into His power and stay faithful in the midst of trials and temptation, the reason why that's possible is because God came to us. Because God sent His Son to suffer and to die in a way that's unimaginable in our place. And it's in his greatest moment of suffering as he takes the penalty that we deserved. Us accepting that and accepting him as our Lord and Savior that enables us to endure faithfully. If you're someone who's repented of your sin and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, isn't it encouraging? You don't just get him as your Savior, you get him as your strength. He's your strength this morning. As we look to Christ, there's always more than enough comfort and strength and nearness in our afflictions. Does that make sense? Our afflictions will never outrun the comfort God will provide to us in Christ. 
Verse 5 says, in Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. Just as Jesus experienced God's comfort, you'll experience God's comfort. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll be raised from the dead. When we come to Jesus, we don't just get him as our Savior, we get him as our strength. And you need, you need him as both, but you don't get him as your strength until he becomes your Savior. Do you know him as your Savior? If you want to know the God of all comfort, if you want to experience the hope of knowing the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies, you first have to come to him through his Son. It's the only way. All right, let's pray this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this morning I invite you to come to Christ. To turn from your sin, to believe that Jesus lived the life you can't live, died the death you deserve to die, and rose from the dead, conquering the enemy you can't conquer, and that's death. To receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you're, and I'll be down front in a moment if that's the decision that you're making today. If you're a believer, I want to help you apply this to your life. All right, what are you trying to handle on your own this morning? Are you battling trial, temptation? Are you trying to battle those things in your own power? Listen, God's given us a way, a much better way of handling ourselves in our afflictions than, hey, hang in there. I'll never give you more than you can handle. That's not what he gives us. No, he gives us himself. And he says, stop trying to live life in your own power and turn to me. It's my desire to help you. So rely on him and look to him. You may be overwhelmed what you're going through, but I promise you God's not overwhelmed. We get overwhelmed, he doesn't. Turn to God who raises the dead. Maybe you're filled with anxiety this morning about an uncertain future with your health, with your life, with your circumstances. Turn to God who is ever faithful to deliver us and he'll comfort you and strengthen you in your trial. Maybe like the Apostle Paul, you just, you need somebody to pray for you. I'll be down front. I would love to pray for you this morning. Maybe you need to turn to somebody near you and say, hey, will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? We'll open up the front of this room like an altar this morning. You can come and pray. Maybe this morning you have not been the conduit of God's comfort that he's called you to be. It's just easy for us to get wrapped up only with ourselves in our times of affliction. And we miss even some healing that we can experience if we will make ourselves a conduit and allow God to serve one of his main purposes in our life and our suffering. And that's to be a comforter to others who are struggling like we are.